we welcome you to the Tabernacle Podcast, brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit our website, tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. You can find other sermons like this one on Apple Podcast, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. It is our prayer that God has used this message to be an encouragement to your heart. We've come to 2 Samuel chapter number 5. We'll begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read through uh, verse number 16. Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron and spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou wast he that ledest out and broughtest in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be captain over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron, and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign and reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 30 and three years over all Israel and Judah. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in hither. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, the same as the city of David. And David said on that day, Whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore they said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So David dwelt in the fort and called it the city of David. And David built round about from Milo and inward. And David went on and grew great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, and carpenters, and masons, and they built David an house. And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. And David took him more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem after he was come from Hebron, and there were yet sons and daughters born to David. And these be the names of those that were born unto him in Jerusalem, Shemua and Shobab and Nathan and Solomon, Ibhar also and Elishua and Nepheg and Japhiah and Elishama and Eliada and Eliphalet. Here we find that David's house is increasing. It is growing stronger. We see that this, of course, now uh, culminates in the fact that the men of Israel have come to David after the long war, uh, after the seven and a half years of not acknowledging that David was their king. Finally, the men of Israel come to David, and they recognize, they acknowledge that David is the king, and they anoint him as their king. We see afterwards that immediately following that, David and the men of Israel go to Jerusalem to fight against the Jebusites, where they're met by a very defiant adversary. David leads the men of Israel to victory, and Jerusalem is conquered by David. And then we read, of course, in the closing verses that 
David's family grew and that his government grew. But we note in verse number 12, the statement that we read, and David perceived, notice this please, that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. I want to speak to you this morning on this subject, the Lord established the king. The Lord established the king. The word established means that uh, his kingdom, his place as king in the kingdom was made firm. The primary action of this verb is to cause to stand in an upright position. And thus the word also means fixed or steadfast. It signifies the action of setting in place, establishing a royal dynasty, appointing to an office, confirming a position, and attaining certainty. Now, we read from the timeline that uh, David was anointed king in Hebron at the age of 30. By the time he becomes the king of Israel, he's between the ages of 37 and 38. We believe that he was anointed king somewhere around the age of 16, that he fought Goliath in the valley soon after, perhaps at the age of 17. And so from the time that David was anointed in Bethlehem to the time now that the men of Israel as a nation come and anoint David king, it's been a period of about 22 years. A lot of things have taken place. We know that after David defeated Goliath, Saul turned against David in jealousy. Uh, Saul began to accuse David of being disloyal to him and sought to kill him. We know that David wandered in the wilderness for a period of about 13 years until finally Saul and his sons were slain and the Lord told David to go to Hebron where the men of Judah anointed him to be king. Uh, but he was not the king of all the people. The men of Israel followed the house of Saul. And as we have noted during the long war that we saw in chapter number 3, that the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker and the house of David waxed stronger and stronger. John Woodhouse in his commentary really helps bring all of this into perspective for us. And I want to read uh, just a quote from his commentary. He asked the question as he introduces this fifth chapter, he asked this question, why is it that human beings have never been able to build a society that is all we would like it to be? Why are harmony and happiness so difficult to attain and so fleeting on the occasions we think we've managed to find them. Why do leaders who appear to promise so much always let us down? Why do conflict, suffering, injustice, disappointment, anxiety, and fear continue so powerfully in human lives and societies? Why have we never been able to build communities that are completely secure, prosperous, peaceful, and joyful? Well, that's the question we're asked and we're constantly asking all the time. The simple but true answer, he says, is that we are not good. Oh, there's some measure of goodness in us, but the Bible teaches us that none of us are good. No, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He said we are not good enough. We are not wise enough. Yes, we have wisdom. 
but we don't have the wisdom that we need. And we're not strong. Yes, we have strength, but we don't have enough to build a society and a, and, and a nation that uh, continues to preserve the things that we've just talked about. So we find out we're not good enough, we're not wise enough, we're not strong enough. That is what the house of Saul teaches us as it waxes weaker and weaker. So Woodhouse goes on to write, he says, it follows that the Bible's message about the kingdom of God is enormously important. God has promised to do what humans lack the goodness, wisdom, and power to accomplish. Only the kingdom of God guarantees the righteousness we consistently fail to exhibit, the peace we find so elusive, and the joy that is always transitory. It's always fleeting. In the Old Testament history of the people of Israel, the kingdom of David was the kingdom of God. That is, David was God's king. His was not the full or perfect expression of God's kingdom. That only came into the world with Jesus Christ and will culminate only when he returns. Nonetheless, the surprising and often perplexing story of David's journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem teaches us a great deal about the kingdom of God. It's very important for us this morning to recognize and to learn, to acknowledge that we are citizens of a kingdom that is not of this world. That is the kingdom of God. When the Lord Jesus was asked by Pilate, are you a king? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. No, his kingdom is coming. He is a king. And David, as we mentioned several times, though he is a historical figure, he also serves for us as a prophetical tool to teach us about the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, finally, David is seeing here, as the Bible tells us in verse number 12, he is beginning to understand, he's beginning to perceive that the Lord has finally, after all those years on the run from Saul, after all of that instability within the nation of Israel, that God has established him as the king and that God has exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. Now, as we examine this passage, we're going to note three aspects of David's kingdom. And those aspects of the kingdom of David confirm to us the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ has also been established. It's a real kingdom. And it is coming to pass, as God said it would. Now, we're going to note three things. We're going to note the king's people. Then secondly, we're going to note the king's power. And then finally, we're going to note the king's place. But as we look at those three things, I want to ask you to help me this morning. I want you to consider three questions, very important questions. Number one, are you among his people? Well, that's an important question. Because if you're not among his people, then friend, you are not a citizen of his kingdom. And secondly, have you experienced his power, his power to save, his power to deliver? You say, well, yes, I, I'm a Christian. I'm one of his people. Yes, I experienced his mercy and his grace. I've experienced his power. But are you living in that power? Are you realizing it every day of your Christian life? 
And then finally, do you have a home in his place? And if you have a home in his place, then are you looking to set your affection in things above, not on the things of this earth? Well, I want to give you these three thoughts, and I hope you'll follow along with me. Number one, we see the king's people. The king's people. The Bible says here in verse 1, Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron, and spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. You see, they had this opportunity as a nation seven years earlier when David went to Hebron. They could have all come into the kingdom of David. They were all invited. He sent messengers of peace to them to say to them, You can have a place in my kingdom but there were those who resisted. They continued to follow the house of Saul. Saul represents all that man can do. And as Woodhouse has noted, man falls far short. David is emblematic, typical for us of what God can do because David is the king's or is the Lord's choice as king. Saul was man's choice as king. So finally now, it's as if they've had a revelation as the prodigal son who was out in the far country and he had, he had uh, wasted his substance on riotous living. He had a moment finally feeding uh, the, the swine and eating the same food that he fed them with. He had a moment, an epiphany, a revelation where he saw, he recognized, wait a minute, I need to go back home to my father's house I, I have a far better life there than I could ever have here. Finally, the men of Israel have a revelation. They have a moment when God speaks to them clearly, and they understand the futility of the house of Saul, and they recognize that their only hope is in David. And so they all come. They all come to him. Now, there are two things we're going to note happens here. First of all, we're going to see their confession, and then secondly, we're going to see their covenant. But before the covenant comes, there's a confession that must be made. Now, notice what they say in verse 1. Here's their words to David when they approach him. Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Now, this speaks relationally. It speaks of their relation to David. We are thy bone and thy flesh. We're the same nation. We're the same people. Our fathers are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are the people of God. You are among the people of God. We are thy bone and thy flesh. But it also speaks more importantly, not only of their relation, it speaks of his rule and their submission to it. We are thy bone and thy flesh. We are a part of the body. We are a part of your body, king. You are the head and we are the body. And the body moves in response to the head. Now, we find a wonderful picture in the New Testament of this, right? It's the church. We are the people of God. We are the body of Christ. He is the head. We are members of his body. All of us together comprise the body of Christ, and we move at the impulse of his will. He controls us. So we come to him, and we surrender to him. We submit to him just as our bodies submit to us and they move as our minds, our brains uh, send those signals 
uh, throughout the nervous system of our bodies, and they begin to move. Those parts of our bodies are functioning and moving together, working in concert so that we can function. The church of Jesus Christ is submitted to the rule of our head, the Lord Jesus. And so they confess that David was their sovereign. He's in charge. He's the king. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you confessed to Jesus that he is your king? Not simply that he's going to get you to heaven someday, but that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that he is your sovereign, that he has the right to rule in your life. A confession to the king. Then secondly, we see here concerning their confession, not only that they confessed that David was their sovereign, but they confessed that David was their savior. Notice in verse 2, Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou wast he that led us out and brought us in Israel. You see, not only now do we see that they're, they're, they're confessing that he's the sovereign, but they're saying you're the savior. Even when Saul was the king, it wasn't Saul who led us out and brought us in from battle. David, it was you. You were the one that the women sang that David has slain his tens of thousands. You were the one who led us into battle and delivered us from the enemy. Aren't you glad to know that our king, King Jesus, is the one who overcame death and sin and the grave and hell? He overcame the great enemy of your soul. He is your Savior. And he has defeated our foe. They confessed that he was the sovereign, the head. They confessed that he was the Savior, the one who fought for them. And they confessed that David was their shepherd. Look again in verse 2. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be a captain over Israel. Here they're acknowledging what they knew all along, that, that David was the Lord's choice. They are revealing their own rebellious heart and their past rebellious actions. And now here they come and say, wait a minute, we've had enough of our own selfish pride and our, our sinful insistence of going our way. Now we're coming to submit to you because you are our shepherd. You are the one who God said would feed my people Israel. That's what a shepherd does. He takes care of the sheep. He feeds them. He cares for them. What we found out about Saul is that he cared for himself. What we find about David is that he cares for the Lord and for his glory. He, he cares to be concerned about what the Lord wants him to do, and he cares for the people of Israel. They came with their confession. It was a threefold confession that he, David was their sovereign, that David was their savior, and that David was their shepherd. Let me ask you a question. Have you come to Jesus with that confession? Lord Jesus, you are my sovereign. You are the Savior, and you are the shepherd. You see, before you can become a part of the people of God, before you can be established with the king, you must come with that confession. We notice then as a result of that confession that a covenant is made. So there's the confession of the men of Israel, uh, their confession to the king, and then there's their covenant with the king. 
Look in verse 3. So all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron, and the king, David, made a league with them. He made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed him king over Israel. I want you to know that we have a Bible. Thank God for it. 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament. That reveals to us the law. And what does the law teach us? The law teaches us that we're sinners. And the law reveals to us that we are all together in our unrighteousness and that we cannot, in our sinful condition, please God. But thank God for the new covenant. That's the old covenant. The new covenant testifies of what Jesus Christ did for us, that he came as the substitute, the Son of God, that he died on the cross for us, bearing our sins. He suffered our sin, our death, and our hell. He arose on the third day from the grave, victorious over death and hell in the grave, and he imparts to us eternal life. This is the new covenant that the king will make with his people that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That means you're a part of the kingdom, eternally saved, eternally secure in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the covenant that the king makes. Oh, it's a joy to be among God's people, is it not? So I ask you to consider the question this morning, are you among his people? Sometimes I talk to people and I ask them, well, tell me how you're going to get to heaven or tell me, are you a believer in the Lord Jesus? Are you a Christian? I've had people say to me, oh, I've always been a Christian. But the truth is you haven't always been a Christian because you were born in sin. For all is sin and come short of the glory of God. David said, behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. I was born a sinner. I sin because I'm a sinner. I don't have to teach uh, my children to lie or to cheat. Listen, they, they learn it from a very early age. Why? Because they have a sin nature. Jesus Christ came to deliver us from sin. Praise be unto God. He came to give to us that which we could not earn. He came to impart to us eternal life. And when I confess him as Savior and I confess my sin, then I enter into that covenant with him. I receive eternal life. I am among the Lord's people. I'm established. I'm propped up. I'm firmly affixed to the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you received him? Have you received him? There must be a time in your life. You may not remember the day, you may not remember the hour, but there must be a time in your life when you personally acknowledge that you're a sinner, that Jesus is the Savior, the Son of God, and you call upon him to be your Savior. And I got some good news for you if you'll do that, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, Romans 10, 13, shall be saved. Well, we see a second thing here. Not only do we see the king's people, but we see the king's power. Now, I want you to look at verses 4 and 5. And verses 4 and 5 is sort of a, a look back and then a look forward, a, a summary of the past and the prospect of the future in two verses, and then the narration picks up again. But let's look at it. Verse 4, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 30 Three, uh, 30 and 3 years over all Israel and Judah. 
Now in verse 6, we see, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in hither. So there's a lot for us to, to dissect here. But we see the king's power. Now he is facing a defiant foe. And the foe, the enemy, are the Jebusites. And they are occupants of the city of Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem was never intended to be occupied by the Jebusites. God gave Jerusalem to the men of Israel. And the Benjamites, actually, along their inheritance was Jerusalem. The, the tribe of Benjamin, well, that was the tribe of Saul. And they had grown content with allowing the Jebusites to dwell in the city of Jerusalem. Now, if you read the book of Joshua, you understand that the men of Israel went into the land of Joshua to possess their possessions. God had already given them the land of Canaan. They went in to fight the battles, to trust in God, to overcome the enemy, and to occupy the land. But there were certain tribes, certain nations rather, that the men of Israel were unable to drive out, not because God was not able, but because of their disobedience, because of their fear, because of their affection for their own sin. And so we find that the men of Benjamin had become sort of a, at ease with the Jebusites, and they decided that they were going to dwell together. You know, it's amazing how that we as believers begin to accept sin in our lives, things that are displeasing to God, and we just learn how to get along with it in our lives. And oftentimes it is because we really enjoy it, but nevertheless, it was never intended of God for the Jebusites to occupy Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the city of our God. It's called Mount Zion. It is the place where Jesus will return. It is the place where Jesus will rule and reign over this earth for a thousand years. God had a plan for that place. And it took his power to eradicate the enemy from the city of Jerusalem. Now, as I said a moment ago, they are a defiant, or were rather, a defiant foe. Now, Alan Redpath in his book, The Making of a Man of God, speaks on the significance of Jerusalem. He says, in spite of the fact the whole land had been given to them, the nation of Israel, they had so far never been able to possess Jerusalem. The city from which God was destined to reign, the most strategic city in the whole land, was, alas, a city in which the enemy was deeply entrenched. The Jebusites were far too strong for the children of Israel. They could not cast them out. But they, this could not be allowed to continue. When David became king of all Israel, we are told he immediately went to the stronghold of Zion. Now, David goes, and the enemy says to David, except thou, look at it in verse 6, here David and his men are coming to Jerusalem, and the enemy says, except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in hither. In other words, they were very confident, this defiant foe, they were very confident and self-assured that victory was theirs, that there was nothing that David could do to deliver, uh, to, to, to take, rather, the city. And, and this is where this difficult phrase comes in, except thou take away the blind and the lame. What is, what is it that the men of, uh, of Jerusalem, the Jebusites, are referring to? Well, Matthew Henry gives us a little bit of insight that I think is very helpful. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, writes this, They confided either in the protection of their gods, 
Now, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, were idol worshipers. They, they confided either in the protection of their gods, which David in contempt had called the blind and the lame. And that's exactly what David called them. In fact, if you look with me, there are two references in the Psalms. Psalm 117, where David refers to the, the pagan gods, the idols of the Canaanites as blind and lame. He refers to them in Psalm 117 in that sense, but also in Psalm 135. I want to read Psalm 135 to you. <clears throat> Pardon me. Psalm 135 and verse 15. The idols of the heathen are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Neither is there any breath in their mouths. They that make them are like unto them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. You see, David is basically saying they're lame. They have no power. They're blind. They, they cannot see. They have mouths, but they're, they're mute. They cannot speak. They have ears, but they, they're deaf. They cannot hear. And thus this statement, the lame and the blind, he is referring to their gods, which they knew he referred to them in that way. And so they said, well, our gods that you call lame and blind, they're going to protect us. And unless you can come and take them away, you're never going to get into our city. Henry goes on to say, they also trusted in the strength of their fortifications. Remember now, Jerusalem was called the fort. So they were trusting in the strength of their fortifications, which they thought were made so impregnable, but they weren't. They had a false assurance that nothing could stop them. By the way, doesn't this generation have that same false assurance? They've rejected God. They're worshiping things. They're worshiping the creature more than the creator. And they're arrogant. They've built their strongholds. And, and the governments of this world that have removed God from uh, the public scene, and, at least in the affairs of, of their nation, uh, they're very arrogant and, 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 and very self-assured that nothing will ever bring them down. A defiant foe. That's the spirit of this age. That's the spirit that we're facing in our nation today. But then we see they were a defeated foe. Look at verse 7. Nevertheless, in spite of all their talk, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. David won the battle. Let me just tell you, the battle is already won. I want to tell you, King Jesus is coming again. And there's no details in here about the battle. There's, there's no talk of the struggle. All we know is that David just went in and he took over the city. I want to tell you that when Jesus returns, he's going to take over. There won't be much to it. No argument will be offered. No armor will be used against him. He will come again and he will take over. Verse 8, David said on that day, Whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul. Again, this is a reference to their false gods. He shall be chief and captain. Wherefore they said the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Verse 9, 
So David dwelled in the fort and called it the city of David, and David built round about from Milo and inward. David just walks in and takes over. That's what Jesus is going to do. Now let me say this to you. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior, then you are not your own. Paul said that, right? You are bought with a price. If you have confessed to him that he is your sovereign, your Savior, your shepherd, you are among his people. You belong to him. He has the right to occupy your life. There should be no strongholds of the devil in your heart. What area have you not yet yielded to Christ? Where did the Jebusites rule in your life? Your attitude? Your covetousness? A gossiping tongue? Some roots of bitterness and unforgiveness? some lust, some habit, anger? Where is it that the Jebusites have a stronghold? Would you allow Jesus to come in and in his power remove that which you've not been able to remove? You say, Pastor, I've struggled with this for years. I've struggled with these fears. I've struggled with these doubts. Would you allow King Jesus to rule and reign in your life and cast out the enemy and fully Occupy the throne of your life. He deserves all of it, does he not? He has the power to deliver. Alan Redpath writes this, One of the first evidences of the enthronement of Jesus Christ in our lives will be that deeply entrenched habits of evil will be put under subjection to our risen Lord who will inhabit that temple of the Holy Spirit, your body and mind. That stronghold of sin which has defied our best efforts, that which has caused us many a heartache and many a tear and many a feeling of remorse and frustration, that which has almost made us give up the fight altogether, how wonderful when Jesus becomes king, it is put under his feet. He comes into our lives to establish his kingdom and to inaugurate it by giving up the first taste of deliverance and victory over the power of inbred sin. You say, well, you know, I just it's who I am, and it's just going to have to accept me for who I am. Wait a minute. Does God not have the power to deal with you and your sin? So how do I how do I how do I experience that power, Pastor? By faith and in obedience. How are you saved? If you are saved, through faith and obedience. You heard the message of the gospel. Jesus is the Son of God. You're a sinner. You must come to him. You obeyed the message. You put your faith in Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit of God came to dwell within you and changed you and made you a new creature in that very moment. That was a powerful thing. Well, you see, we've tasted that power and experienced it once, but we can experience it on a daily basis. It is available to us. So how is it to be experienced? The same way we got it the first time. Obedience. Faith. In that hour of temptation, to say no to us and say yes to the king, to bow, to submit, to surrender to him. Are you willing to do that? If so, you'll experience the king's power. Well, let me give you the final thought we have here. 
this morning, and that is the king's place. The king has a place. That place is Jerusalem. Now, <laughs> there's a Jerusalem here on earth. Jesus is coming. He's going to rule and reign. He cannot allow the Jebusites to occupy it. He's going to drive them out. Why, why does the world hate the Jewish nation? Why does the world hate Jerusalem? Because the world hates God. But in spite of all their hate and all their attempts to extinguish the Jewish people and, and to take over Jerusalem, I'm telling you, friend, Jesus is coming again, and he's going to stand on Mount Zion, and he's going to rule and reign over this world for a thousand years. At the end of that thousand years will be the great white throne judgment, and the new heaven and the new earth after that, and we will be with God for eternity. You see, the king has a place. The question is, do you have a home there? Do you have a home there? Well, if you're among his people, you have a home there. And the question is, if you belong to him, does he have a home in you? Because you too are the place of the Lord. Now, the Bible tells us that uh, in verse number 5 again, in Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned 30 and three years over all Israel and Judah. Now look at verse 10. And David went on and grew great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. Verse 11, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So here we find that in his place he has a house. In this place, he has a house. This church, this body of believers is the habitation of God in the Spirit. We are the house of God. Individually, we are the house of God. Corporately, we make up the house of God. And that house is not limited to the Jewish nation. That house is to all people, all kindreds, all tongues, all tribes of the nations in the world. Then we see his government. Look in verse 12. And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he exalted his kingdom for his people Israel, saying, you see, from his place he will establish his rule. The Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end. There will be no more elections, no more debates, no more parties, no more rebellions, no more overthrows. Jesus' government will be everlasting. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forevermore. The world's been crying out for justice the world's been crying out for judgment. They're only going to find it in one place and one person, and that's Jesus. His house, his government, and then his family. And really, his family's increasing here. The Bible gives us the names of his sons, but it tells us something that's a little disturbing to us, is it not? In verse 13, and David took him more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem. Now, Matthew Henry writes about this concerning David's 
multiple wives. He already had at least three before he became king in Hebron. Now when he is king in Jerusalem, he takes more wives and he has more children. And we know looking forward into David's story that his multiple uh, wives and children are going to result in a devastating impact. So what does Matthew Henry say about this? He says, shall we praise him? Speaking of David, shall we praise him for this? We praise him not. We justify him not, nor can we scarcely excuse him. The bad example of the patriarchs might make him think there was no harm in it, and he might hope it would strengthen his interest by multiplying his alliances and increasing the royal family. Happy is the man that, have his, that has his quiver full of these arrows. But one vine by the side of the house with the blessing of God may send boughs to the sea and branches to the river. Adam, by one wife, peopled the world, and Noah repeopled it. David had many wives, and yet that did not keep him from coveting his neighbor's wife and defiling her. For men that have once broken the fence will wander endlessly. You see, we find in David a problem that ultimately is going to result in his adultery with Bathsheba. And yes, his kingdom points us to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the seed of David. But the Bible doesn't whitewash. It doesn't roll under the carpet and hide it away. It reveals to us the complexity and the temptation and the snares and the problems and, and, and the confusion and the calamity that results from our sin. And it gets ugly and it gets messy, even in a place like our heart, even in a place like a church. But thanks be unto God for his grace. Where sin did abound Grace did much more abound. And in the king's place, there is forgiveness. In the king's place, there is hope and security. In the king's place, when we get there, ultimately, there'll be no more sin, no more death, no more sorrow. So I want to ask you a question, three of them. I hope you'll be honest enough to answer. Are you among his people? Do you know the Lord Jesus? Have you come to him with that confession? Are you a member of his covenant family? That you know your sins are forgiven and you're on your way to heaven. If you don't know that today, don't delay. Don't put it off. Take care of this today. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and say, Lord, you are my sovereign. You're in charge. You're my Savior. You made the payment of sin and death. You're my shepherd. I want to follow you. Are you among his people? And secondly, I ask you to consider this question. Have you experienced his power in your life? If you're a Christian, you have experienced it. But dear friend, let me ask you this. Are you experiencing it today? Have you become satisfied with the Jebusites living in your heart? 
Have you settled down with them? Jesus isn't satisfied. Why don't you come to him and seek his forgiveness? Seek his grace and his mercy and his power in your life. Obey his command. And then finally, I ask you, do you have a home in his place? The Bible in Hebrews 11 speaks of those who went before us. They were those who died in faith. In verse 14 of Hebrews 11, the Bible says, they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they'd been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country. Do you desire a better country? That is a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. John speaks of that city in Revelation chapter 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears, every tear of, of pain and sorrow and regret and guilt and shame. All the tears will be wiped away from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Listen, we live in a messy, dirty world, don't we? Sometimes my wife will walk into our house and it won't be clean. And she'll get aggravated. And sometimes I do too. Don't you ever just think to yourself, I wish we could just level this and start all over and have something new. You know what God's going to do? He's going to level it. And he's going to give us something new and glorious. And he's preparing it for you. Do you have a place there? And does he have a place in you? The Lord established the king. Thank you for listening. We pray that God has used his word to speak to you today. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit us online at tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. There, you'll find additional information about our church, opportunities to partner with us financially, as well as other resources that we hope can be a help to you. May God bless you, and thank you once again for listening.